and uh, unpacking in detail some of the things that Paul says uh, are central to uh, what took place when Jesus uh, hung on that cross for us. Uh, We looked at the idea of redemption two weeks ago that uh, Jesus has paid the price to set us free from our bondage to sin and death and the devil and that the price he paid was himself, his own blood. Last week uh, we looked at the theme of propitiation, that as Jesus offered himself as that payment to set us free, uh, the, the wrath of God was diverted from us and fell on him uh, in our place. And so we can be assured of our forgiveness. Paul goes on then to talk about the righteousness or the justice of God. And we we had heard earlier in Romans where Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to to all who believe, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So really this idea of God's justice, God's righteousness is a central idea to uh, the Gospel and to the cross. Why is it important that God is shown to be righteous in the cross? Well he says because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. There's a, a dilemma we see unpacked in the Bible and that dilemma is why does God allow the wicked to prosper? It's a, it's a strong theme through the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms and uh, in Psalm 73 we, we see it brought out in its full force. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See this dilemma. I look at the world around me and wicked people are prospering and doing well. But then I look at myself and I'm in in lots of trouble. I thought God 
likes me and hates them, so why are they prospering and why am I suffering? For many people, the biggest dilemma in life is, why does God allow good people to suffer? And that's something that's wrestled with in the scriptures. We even have an entire book, the book of Job, that is dedicated to that issue. But the dilemma in Job is not, how can God allow me to suffer when I don't deserve to? No, it is, how can God allow a person to suffer when his favour is upon them? That might sound like splitting heads, but it's not. The first assumes there's something good in me that is deserving, something that uh, would make God unjust if he allowed me to suffer. But the second doesn't assume any goodness in myself but wrestles with what seems to be a contradiction in God's goodness. He's set his favour upon me and then he allows me to suffer. What's going on? Is God really the good God that I think he is? So it's not a question of whether God unjustly ignores my goodness but of whether he undermines his own goodness. So why does God allow good people to suffer is not the best way to phrase the dilemma from a strictly biblical framework. We know Jesus' words, no one is good but God. When asked uh, what his response was to the, the terrible news of the, the people who had been unjustly slaughtered by the Romans, he also brought up another disaster in which a tower had fallen and had killed people just out of the blue. And his response was to call people to repent. And he said, repent unless you likewise perish. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it, coming from the mouth of Jesus. Doesn't seem very compassionate. These poor people who have been uh, slaughtered and who have been killed in this terrible accident and his response is repent or the same thing would happen to you you also will perish we cannot avoid the fact that he highlights the sinfulness of people not the goodness of people so the dilemma if we know the truth about sinful humanity is not how could God allow good people to suffer but how could he possibly spare bad people? How could he allow the wicked to prosper and survive? Because of our, our humanistic way of looking at humanity, human nature, we tend to have more of a problem with good people suffering than we do with bad people not suffering. But for the biblical writers, this, if anything, was a bigger problem why do the wicked not suffer if God is supposed to be just? How can, we, how can these hungry, uh, power-hungry, idolatrous, immoral people continue to attack us and to oppress us and seem to get away with it? Why is it that the greatest and most powerful kingdoms of this world are led by evil men, characterised by greed and violence? So is God overlooking this great injustice. 
The biblical writers help us understand that when the righteous suffer, not because we're good, but because by grace God has set his favour upon us. When we suffer, we know that God has a plan behind us. He is the loving father who is disciplining his children whom he loves. He's teaching them to trust him, to put aside their idols and even if their suffering leads to death, there is the hope of the resurrection in which God will vindicate the person who truly knows him and loves him. David says in Psalm 16, because he knew the favour of God, even though he suffered and even if his life was absolute misery that ended in death, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But while that serves as a comfort for those who suffer unjustly, the other injustice that seems harder to come to terms with is the apparent overlooking of evil by God. When a person who lives without any regard for him, who commits great sin and evil, lives a happy, prosperous and long life. Why should someone who's not under the favour of God live as if they are. Well, the writer of Psalm 73 begins to find an answer, but not by philosophising it or trying to reason it out. He goes on and says, But when I thought to know how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I just can't grasp this this big dilemma of injustice in the world and God seeming to to overlook injustice until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He sees something in the sanctuary of God, in the, the temple, in the holy place that puts things into perspective, something that enables him to discern their end, the end of the wicked. What he sees in the sanctuary is something that speaks of the final justice of God. Now it may be that he's simply referring to the fact that one day they'll all die and then they'll finally come to an end and face God's judgement. But I think there's more to it than that because you don't need to enter into the sanctuary of God to know that everyone eventually dies. What he sees in the sanctuary is what we spoke about last week. The bloody sacrifices being consumed by fire on the altar. Sacrifices that speak both of the consuming wrath of God but also of the generous grace of God in providing such a means for people to be forgiven. For the psalmist, the justice of God is shown most clearly not in the graveyard but in the temple. This is the place where wrath and mercy meet. It's a place where God both pronounces his curse upon sin and evil and sinners and where he gives his favour to those same sinners. In this place, in the temple, 
judgment and salvation go hand in hand. In fact, salvation comes through judgment. And this is what's captured in Paul's phrase, that God does this, he uh, he puts forward his son Jesus to be uh, the sacrifice for sin, so as to be just and the one who justifies. God is just in that all sin is punished. And he's also the justifier in that sinners are saved. All in the one action of Jesus going to the cross. See, sin presents a dilemma. At least it's a dilemma for us, not for God. If God was simply to give humanity what we deserve then he would wipe us out completely. But in doing this, he would be going against all that he promised Abraham. God's plan is to to bless, to make sure that his blessing flows to every nation in the world. He'd be breaking his own covenant. He'd be going against all that he had promised. More than that, he'd be destroying his own son's inheritance. He created this world by him and through him and for him, for his son. What kind of father promises his son an inheritance and then goes and destroys it? On the other hand, if he were to ignore sin or say it doesn't really matter and just continue as if it just never happened, then he'd be contradicting his own nature as a holy and righteous God who always does what is best for his creatures. He would be complicit with humanity in our willful, uh, malicious destruction of the creation and of one another because he would be allowing the, the, the consequences of our sin to finally triumph in this world instead of his goodness and justice. Well, the good news for us is that while that may seem like a dilemma for us, it seems as if God is backed into a corner. What can he do? Whichever way he turns, he's in trouble. Well, it's not a dilemma for God because before the creation of the world, he already had a plan. A plan in which these two problems that to us seem mutually exclusive, come together and are solved in one action in the cross of Jesus. In the cross, God both deals in a final way with judging sin and in a final way in saving sinners. In this action, he both keeps and fulfills his promises to Abraham to bring blessing. And he balances the scales of justice by dealing once and for all with the root cause of the curse. As we heard from Shin, Martin Luther uh, misunderstood this righteousness of God. He, he saw it as a righteousness of God that was coming against him to punish and condemn his sin. And in a sense, that's the righteousness of God does that. It looks at sin and says, Sin must be judged. But then he realised, no, it's not the righteousness of God coming against me. It's the righteousness of God coming for me, to save me, to justify me, 
to make me right with himself. At the cross it was Jesus who received God's justice so that we might receive God's grace. We saw it last week also that Paul used a word, uh, that word propitiation, which is also the Old Testament word for the mercy seat. And Paul was deliberately referring to this day of atonement where the wrath of God fell upon uh, the place of mercy instead of upon the people. Well here he uses another word that alludes to another point in Israel's history and in Israel's uh, festivals. In verse 25 he talks about God passing over the former sins. This word is used only once in the New Testament here but it's also the word used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to God passing over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt on that night when God struck down the firstborn in every household. Hence the name for the event and its festival, the Passover. It's when we remember that God's judgement passed over us and we were forgiven and free. Why would God pass over the Israelites' home? Well, because a lamb had been sacrificed and its blood painted on their doorway. So why would God pass over former sins? Whether that means our sins or the sins of humanity down through history. Because another lamb has been sacrificed and his blood has been sprinkled on the mercy seat, effectively on the the doorway of God's house. And it's blood that cries out that justice has been done. That any sinner who comes in simple faith and trust now will be justified. God's wrath passes over them. Now all of this isn't just theological ideas. If we know this, this justifying work of God and we know that God has shown himself to be just in the cross. It transforms how we think and how we continue to live in this world where, humanly speaking, injustice still seems to have the upper hand. Firstly, it gives us great confidence to cry out for justice to God, whether it's justice for ourselves or whether it's justice for others. You may know know the story that Jesus told of the widow who needed justice and she only got justice because she kept pestering the judge who was known to be unjust and eventually he said, just to get her off my back, I'm going to give her justice. Jesus tells that story to, to tell us, your God is not like that judge. You don't have to keep pestering and pestering and finally he'll give in just because he's annoyed by you. He says always pray and do not become discouraged because your father will bring justice for you and he'll bring it quickly. 
How do we know that God is not unlike that unjust judge? Well, because of what we've seen. His perfect justice is revealed in the cross of Jesus. If he has acted for us in such a a beautiful combination of justice and love and mercy, can we trust him then to do what is right in everything else? Let's have confidence to cry out to him for justice. Secondly, it saves us from feeling the need to take matters into our own hands, particularly when we are treated unjustly. Our first instinct as sinners when someone does something against us is vengeance. If someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back in equal measure or even greater measure. If someone accuses us of wrong, we want to come back with something that they've done wrong that disqualifies them from accusing us. However, the cross of Christ tells us that God is not only, uh, sorry, tells that God has not only uh, dealt with our sin at the cross, but he's also dealt with the sin of others. The sin of that person who treats me unjustly was borne by Christ on the cross. If God says to that person who hurt us, I've passed over your sins because of what happened at Calvary, then who am I to presume that their sin must be retained and punished by me? By knowing the wonderful liberation of the forgiveness of our sins, we're able to also know the freedom of forgiving the sins of those who sin against us. And isn't that what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. How, how could we ever forgive those who sin against us if it weren't for the cross where those sins were borne by Jesus? Thirdly, it enables us to pursue what you could call above and beyond justice. Now John Piper um, actually says it much better than me so we're going to attempt to play the video. It worked when we tested it before. Doesn't look like it's working. No, I don't think it's going to work. I think we'll... Um Christian life isn't actually a life where we pursue justice because justice is minimalist. Uh, If we just give people what they deserve then he says that's that's not actually the Christian life because in the gospel, in the cross 
Uh, God hasn't given us justice. Uh, He got justice in Christ. Uh, He got justice in that his wrath was satisfied. What did we get? Not justice, we got grace. We got more than we deserved. So uh, the Christian life is not just saying we want to get things equal and balance them out and pursue justice. We, uh, we're called to pursue more than justice. We're called to give people... There we are. Well, listen. better than than me. Uh, He references there uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, going the extra mile. And um, once we're up and running again, hopefully I've got that. Thanks Michael. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's justice. The punishment fits the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus was referring here to the law of reciprocation, which is actually in the law the Old Testament law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is a direct quote from the Torah, the law. And this is commonly taken by some to to mean that Jesus is saying that old law no longer applies, I'm going to overturn it and I'm going to replace it with a new law. But he's not saying that, he can't be saying that because just before this he said, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfil it and not one word of it will pass away. No, he's actually showing us here how a person can fulfil the law completely in the spirit of the law, not the letter. In the culture of the day, the reason why someone would strike you on the cheek or force you to to go a mile with them to give them assistance or take your tunic is because you committed some kind of offence against them and they've sued you. And this is what the justice system 
based on an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth demanded. If you cause harm to someone, you must make up for it in equal amounts. If you've harmed someone, travel with them a mile to give them assistance to make up for what you did. But what does Jesus say? Well, don't just give them the justice that they desire or what the court has said they need to have. Give them more than justice. Give them generosity. Give them twice as much as the law says they deserve. Even if they're only doing it to cause you harm, still give them more than justice. Who cares if it's unfair? Who cares if you seem to be the loser in this scenario? You've already been justified by the one who unfairly took your sin upon himself. And in turn, you have everything you could possibly ever need because of God's outrageous grace towards you. So you actually have nothing to lose by practising this above and beyond justice, more than justice, grace, generosity. The cross is the only authentic basis for seeking and working for justice and for good in this world. If we try to to seek or work for justice in this world on any other basis than the fact that in the cross we've been justified through faith in Jesus, we'll end up doing it on the basis of our own perceived self-righteousness. We'll see the origin of the good that we're doing being in ourselves and we'll be tempted to take the moral high ground, especially over those that we feel are not doing enough for justice in this world than we are. However, the cross shows us that the source of all justice and righteousness is God. The God whose righteousness is shown forth not just in his punishment of sin, but in his mercy towards sinners. It saves us from the arrogance of thinking it's all down to us and that somehow we'll be our, we will be the solution to this world's problems. The righteousness of God shown in the cross gives us the confidence and the humility to serve our God while living in this world and to look forward to the day when this justice of God will flow out and renew the whole creation when Jesus appears. In the meantime, we just love our neighbour as ourselves and we hold out to them this message of the cross because it's the cross that makes sense of all that we do in loving them. If all we do is good works, they'll conclude we're good people. But in the context of our good works, if we're sharing this message of Christ and him crucified, they'll conclude that the God we serve is good and they'll worship him and desire to know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of the cross, we can have an absolute confidence in your righteousness that you are a just God who will always do what is right and fair and good it's because of the cross of Jesus that we know that your plan to bring justice and peace to this whole creation uh, will never fail because you have shown your faithfulness so clearly and strongly uh, in the sacrifice that you have made for us Father enable us to be confident in that 
fact that we are justified people, right with you, uh, adopted into your family and may that confidence in what you've done for us flow out into the way we live our lives. Father, may it give us hearts of compassion and love and mercy and grace towards our neighbours. Father, we recognise that our neighbours are not just the people sitting next to us this morning or even the people uh, over our back fence. Our neighbours are uh, the entire human race and we, we look at this world around us and we see so much pain and injustice. We see so much evil being committed uh, by our fellow human beings. Father, we confess and, and we know that uh, if it wasn't for your grace, uh, we would be capable of evil just as great as them. Help us, Father, to look with compassion not only upon those who suffer but also those who commit evil, to know that you, your mercy is extended towards them as much as it is towards us. Help us, Father, to be people who are tireless in living our lives not for ourselves but for you who die for us and for those around us. Help us, Father, to have open eyes to see the suffering and the pain that is around us and to be willing to give of ourselves and our time and our resources in order to to bless and not to curse. Father, we ask that you will enable us to be faithful also in proclaiming this good news because as we've heard, uh, none of our good works make any sense unless the foundation is the good work that you have done towards us in Jesus. Help us to go out not with arrogance or self-righteousness but with the humility that comes from seeing Christ hanging there for us. Help us to serve not in our own strength but in the strength that you give. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn. Surely has he borne our griefs and sorrows.